All right. Um, Philip's handing out one of two handouts, so you get to get and be involved later. Oh, Not now, but we'll uh, we'll do a second handout later. Um, of Romans chapter 8, I am not going to have us read the whole thing here because it would take us 20 minutes. Um, but it's just interesting when you start approaching teaching anything, anytime you run into uh, great scriptures, and then you come across comments of saying, this is the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. And you're going, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, let's, let's, let's try to deal with this casually. No, this is an extraordinary piece of scripture. But as I wrote here, should we really be ranking the chapters of the Bible? I mean, that's kind of, uh, even Martin Lloyd-Jones says, while I consider Romans chapter eight to be the greatest chapter in the Bible, I probably should instead say, it's the chapter that I am currently teaching that is the greatest chapter in the Bible, no matter what chapter I'm reading, because it is all God's Word. But there's no denying that this particular chapter, in, in this particular chapter, Paul expresses the glory of a life in Christ through the power of the Spirit with soaring language. Um, this particular commentary by James Montgomery Boyce are actually his sermons on all of Romans. This is volume two of four. See where that bookmark is? This much is chapter eight. He did 26 sermons on Romans chapter eight. Three of them on today's passage, which is verses one through four. Wow. You know, think, think about that church. They're hearing one chapter of the Bible for over half a year. It's amazing when you think about it. And yet, as I was reading through many of the, uh, the sermons kind of in preparation, I'm going, each time he comes to it, it's a glorious expression and a glorious exposition. Well, he quotes a fellow named Charles Trumbull who wrote this, he said, the eighth chapter of Roman has become, Romans has become particularly precious to me, beginning with the words, no condemnation, you can see that in your text, verse one, and ends with no separation, verse 39. And in between, verse one and verse 39 is no defeat. So think about it, no condemnation, no separation, no defeat. This wondrous chapter sets forth the gospel and the plan of salvation, the life of freedom and victory, the hope, hopelessness of the natural man and the righteousness of the born again, the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things for our good, every tense of the Christian life, past, present, and future, and the glorious climactic song of triumph, no separation in time or eternity from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. As the old German commentator named Spenner said, that if the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, 
chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of that jewel. And he's right. There's so much here. I did a cursory, just very quick read, and I just started underlining verses that are quote-unquote famous. And I'm just going to read them to you. I'll point them out so you can see them in your text. So verse 1, there is now... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's just the highlight reel. You can see why it's considered such an extraordinary expression of the Christian life. But when you go to try to teach this, uh, you know, and you, you want to break it up, because there's no way I could do all of 39 verses in one week. Not, not how we approach our text, anyway. I mean, there are many teachers that do that. They'll do it in one sermon, or they'll do it in one class, and it's really a broad brush. But our goal here is to kind of um, look under the moss and look under the bark and see what's there. But when you do that, you need to outline or have some sort of structure that you follow. At least that's how I would teach it. You can't just start winging it and then hope, you know, hope it all comes together. But here's the problem. No one agrees how to outline this chapter. Charles Hodge and Leon Morris have six different sections. Martin Lloyd-Jones has eight. John Stott has two, but he breaks the two parts into four sections and two sections, so he has six. The NIV has three subheadings and nine paragraphs, suggesting nine sections. The ESV, which you have in front of you, has four sections. You can see the subheads on your your handout, but there are six paragraphs. Whereas the NIV has nine paragraphs. So who's right? It kind of makes you wonder if we should even try to section it apart or outline it at all. It defies that. 
There's so much here and it's all integrated. So as we you know, break it down and we're going to be looking at it much more carefully. In fact, today our goal is to look only at the first four verses. But we're going to be digging in, but you can never separate it from the larger picture beyond chapter 8. Because this is merely one part of the larger exposition. But, as an overview of this chapter, I found an article uh, by a fellow named Ryan Higginbottom that I thought was helpful, at least for our class's purposes, because it's kind of a different way of looking at this chapter as a whole, by focusing on the word spirit. If you recall, chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, Paul changed the narrative from, um, from a distant perspective to a very personal one. And remember we talked about we're going to have a heavy dose of the vitamin I because the word I, me, or my was 40 times in those verses. The I, me, or my disappears in chapter 8. It's there, but it's, ju it's just not the focus. Instead, you find the word pneuma 22 times in these 39 verses. And all 22 appear in the first 27 verses. <clears throat> just by comparison, the word spirit is only used five times in the first seven chapters of Romans. Only five. And in chapters 9 through 16, the word spirit is only used eight times. So in 15 of the 16 chapters of Romans, the word spirit is used 13 times. But in chapter 8, it's used 22 times. Kind of gives you the sense that maybe he's trying to tell us something. So... While the Spirit is not necessarily the main topic, it is a main, uh, how, how, what's the right word here? Emphasis or awareness or something that you need to be thinking about as it permeates all of the other doctrinal and instructional material that we find here. So, what I've done here is picked out eight different sections in chapter 8 that focus on the Spirit, just as our overview. So let's look at verse 2. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. The Spirit is the Spirit of life. This is a contrast to the law of sin and death. The Spirit's law frees us and it becomes life. If you want, because I did it on my text, circle the word spirit every time you see it. And it's capitalized all but two times in chapter 8. So you see it right there. Verses 4 through 6. You find the spirit is opposed to the flesh. You see, it says, um, 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. So we live, walk, and set our minds on things in the spirit. It's embedded in us and gives us that power by which we can make our way in this world by God's grace. And you jump to verses 9 and 10. Here you find very quickly, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So, those who have the spirit belong to God. That is the meaning here. If you don't have the spirit, you don't belong to God. It's kind of a have and have not proposition. It's very straightforward. Verse 11. This is our fourth point. Those with the Spirit will rise to eternal life. See what it says? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So we have the resurrection right here in the middle of this passage. Through the power of the Spirit. And jump down to verse 13. We need the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, seems to be a blinding flash, flash of the obvious, but it's very straightforward here. If you try to do it on your own, you will fail. You can only do this through the Spirit. Then verse 14 to 17, I'm not going to read all of them, but just give you the idea here, is we are led by the Spirit of God, our sons of God. We receive a spirit of adoption. And then verse 16, the Spirit himself bears, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And notice verse 16, the second spirit is not capitalized. Because it's not speaking of God's spirit, it's speaking of our spirit. That's why you have the separation here in that understanding. But the principle here is that through the spirit of God, we are adopted as children of God. Big picture, big concept, we'll obviously be coming back to it uh, when we get to this section. Then we jump down to verse 23. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. It says, not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruit of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly as for adoption as sons and the redemptions of our bodies. We've talked a bit before about the fruit of the Spirit found in Romans. We know the famous section over in Galatians, but he's 
reiterating this idea of some benefits of the Spirit itself. And then in verses 26 and 27, you have the Spirit interceding for us. When we don't know how to pray, as we ought, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know, you look at these two pages in the handout, Romans chapter 8, and I could just say, say to you, let's just read this and go home, because it teaches itself. It is pretty clear what's being said here. What I like about this exercise of looking at how the Spirit is integrated and underneath all of this other, because if you, you can read it and actually miss that word, Spirit. It might, oh yeah, I've seen it a lot, but not realizing how frequent it's used. I think it's kind of wonderful, actually. So now I do have another handout, so I'll get you busy. This is the first four verses. With a little bit of extra space in between them so you can take notes, because this other thing doesn't allow you to write too much. Uh, There's not a lot of margins on the pages here for you. That's why I do it this way. And if you're curious, I set it to... Uh, 32 points between the lines, in case you would like to know word formatting and you're a geek like that, that's how I do it. So there's just enough that you can write and point, and because there's only four verses, you have a lot of space underneath. There are many people who believe that verses 1 through 4 belong at the end of chapter 7 that they are the conclusion to what is being read or uh, being written at the end of chapter 7 where it says wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then myself serve the law of God with my mind but by my flesh I serve the law of sin there is therefore now no condemnation if you take the chapter heading out it feels like a continual expression. We talked about that last week. That's possible. Um, I also have at the bottom of the page a side note just for tickles and grins if you want to call it that. You see how the King James renders verse 1 it says, there is that, therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after flesh, but after the Spirit. Now look at the top of your page and notice how the ESV renders it. There's a period after the word Jesus, not a comma. But then the highlighted section that I have here, you find in its entirety at the end of verse 4. Direct quote. Isn't that interesting? So, aren't we glad we have these people in our church? The Texton Canon Institute, John Mead, Dr. John Mead, and all of that. 
And in fact, if you've been getting the church newsletter, you'll have seen the links to the seminar that they did a few weeks ago. Listen to them. Watch them. This kind of discussion is what they are talking about, why it's important to know how we got our Bible. So, Lisa can attest to this, after the service this morning, I went and hunted down John and asked him this question about this passage. Yes. I said, Oh, I already have my own answers, but I wanted to hear from, you know, world-class scholar, you know, nothing like jumping on a guy in the middle of, you know, no preparation. So do you know? Well, guess what? Guess what? He pulls out his Greek New Testament in front of me, and he's looking at the, if you know, if you see the full Greek New Testament with apparatus showing which manuscripts are being used. He looked immediately down on the footnotes, and he goes, oh, look, it's in this one, it's in this one, it's, oh, but it's not in that one. Oh, that's interesting. And I said, has this ever come up in, he says, yeah, occasionally, but it's almost obvious that there was a scribal error, that a guy who's copying along, his, his eye jumped, and then picked up from the end of verse 4. But even Dr. John said, problem with that is that's an awful big jump. So he's going to go home today and he will actually look at the actual manuscripts themselves. The Texas Receptus, this Texas Cyanaticus, and he's going to send me an email this weekend <laughs> and saying, this is fascinating. I wonder, because he was wondering if it was done in columns and if the eye could go across to another column too easily for an error like this to pop into the Greek text that the King James used in translating. It's set in the King James uncorrected. It's still there today. If you have a King James Bible, that passage, that second half of the passage is there. It wasn't until modern translations came out and they found earlier manuscripts before the error was made that corrected it. So it's interesting, when you read old sermons on Romans 8 verse 1, inevitably mm. the pastor will say, congregation, there's a period after the word Jesus, ignore the rest, it's just a mistake and gave them something to talk about scholastically because it's too obvious because it's identical and it's very close. Now we could get into the, the deep weeds here but that addition actually makes a difference in how you read verse 1. It can change the meaning ever so slightly but I just want you to be aware that I'm aware and if you grew up in the King James and you had this memorized in the King James and you're wondering why I skipped half the verse, this is why. It's that it has been corrected. That doesn't mean you doubt your Bible. It means there's a lot of smart people like Dr. Mead out there looking at these kinds of things and very prayerfully deciding and con they're, they're concerned that we have the best text in front of us that we can possibly get. 
And we're going to look at some of the reasons why it's even hard to translate from Greek into English today. So let's start with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are four absolutely amazing words here. The first word is condemnation. I'm not taking them in the order that we have in the text, but I'm taking the order in how I want to approach them together. What does condemnation mean? And I'm going to ask that, not rhetorically, but I want you to tell me. What does condemnation mean? We can know what condemn means, but what does condemnation mean? And the fact that it's there isn't any, well, isn't any what? Why is this a good thing? What does condemnation mean? Oh, I think of the word condemnation in regards to houses. It, it, it's an order that it shall be condemned. Okay. That it's not necessarily happened yet, but it's going to be, there's going to be a condemnation. In which it, it, has, it has gone through a process yes, and declared unfit. Okay, go ahead. Well, I just, what she said, the condemned house, no one's allowed to live there. Okay, interesting. That's part of the deal. You realize that in all the brilliant commentators and expositors, not a single person has ever brought up the idea of condemning a house. I'm sorry. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. I mean, seriously, I'm going, of course. <laughs> but, you know, that's a perfect example. Yes. I think of a prison sentence. Okay. Your, your behavior is unacceptable. Uh huh. And so it's a process, Condem, condemnation of a person's behavior. Okay. And, and saying that this is not right and you have to change. Therefore, we have condemned you based on behavior. on your behavior and the law against which your behavior is antithetical towards. All right. Um, and that's very close to the theological meaning here as well. It's very close to the idea of condemning a house, meaning you're not allowed to live there. It's unworthy. It's unfit to, to be in the public at all. It should be raised. It should be R-A-Z-E-D, <laughs> not R-A-I-C-D, uh, but it should be destroyed. It is a forensic legal term that, uh, here's the guy here who says, it can literally mean adverse judgment and resultant punishment. It's both the judgment and the punishment together. It's the result of judging and the execution of the sentence followed by a suggested punishment. The Greek word is katakrima, and it's always a negative, always. So think of Paul's use of this word here. He's been talking about the law. He's been talking about sin. He's been talking about our complete inability to keep the law. Therefore, we have been condemned by the law and must suffer the consequences of the law. The wages of sin is death. 
And he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoa. Second word. Now. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now is a timestamp word. That means this immediate moment. It's not a will be or has been. It's a now. Coming to the idea of that condemnation in that if we're standing before that judge and the judge says, now you are guilty. Were you guilty prior to the judge's pronouncement? Mm, Technically, no. Not until the judge declares it, right? Well, I'm just curious from from a lawyer standpoint, before the judgment, Innocent until proven guilty, or guilty until proven innocent? Uh, That's either yeah, if you pay or if you live here. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I mean, you think about it, but theologically... See, the judge is applying the, the law. Right. What's the result? To the facts. The fact is you were already sinful. You've already been... And therefore, you're under condemnation. You're under, the you're under condemnation for that sin but the punishment has not yet been meted out or the sentence has not been declared, correct? Right. right. But you see the word now means at this moment, now that we're making that determination, boom. Here comes judgment and punishment all wrapped up into one. But then he says the third word, no. There's no condemnation. Now, the problem with this word no in English is it's a weak word. It's merely a counter to yes. But in Greek, you have the word o, uh, no is O-U. But here, it's O-U-D-A. So you have U or Uda. Uda is a extreme no. It's a shouted no. And in the Greek construction, this is where I was going to tell you how we get to the English the Greek language. This entire sentence begins with Uda. It doesn't start with therefore. It starts with Uda. No, not in any way, shape, or form. In, in fact, you could translate this verse into English literally by reading it as not any therefore now of condemnation. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now, he can never be. It is impossible And so I actually looked up synonyms. It's not, the first word in the Greek is not there, or therefore, or is, or now. It's no. Like, 
Nada, zilch, nil, zero, diddly squat, zippo, void, goose egg. There's no chance in the world in any way, shape, or form that you can imagine it that there's condemnation on you if you are in Christ Jesus. That promise, yeah, I have goosebumps right now, just even saying it like that. Think about that for a second. We know that we have sinned. We know that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet in Christ Jesus, nope, not any chance at all are you going to be declared sinful in my eyes. That's why it's one of the a favorite verse in a favorite chapter. Because of what it's trying to tell you. You're not going to lose this salvation either. It's not just a falling away at some point. Not if it is in Christ Jesus. So the fourth word here that's very wonderful is the word therefore. Now we like to say, if it's a therefore, what is it therefore? Notice it doesn't start the sentence in any translation. But it is pointing to something prior. The question is, what is it pointing to? The easiest thing to say, it's pointing to chapter 7, because this is the beginning of chapter 8. And we can, I, I can actually teach that. I even alluded to it last week. But Martin Lloyd-Jones made a very interesting argument. He spent half a page in his material on it, saying it's actually connecting to the end of chapter 5. Where being dead in Adam and having life in Christ, therefore there is no condemnation. So I'm going to read the end of chapter 5 and then start with chapter 8, just to kind of show how this works. Or at least some thinking about it for it. <clears throat> for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see the connection? It's like, whoa, I've never come across that before. It's an uncommon th thought process. But I think this is one of the beauties of Romans. You could almost do that at any point. You could say this is pointing back to chapter 3. You could say it's pointing back to chapter 6. You could say it's pointing back to chapter 7, and you would all be right. The genius of Paul's writing, through the inspiration of Scripture, is such that the consistency of the message, it's almost this infinity loop. It keeps coming back on itself and starting the, up the process again, so that we finally will understand what he's trying to get at. 
You cannot save yourself. Only those who are in Christ Jesus. It could be the fifth one. <laughs> and there is a truth to this idea of being in Christ, the union with Christ, that we started back in chapter 5. And that is here. But isn't it interesting that um, the therefore shows the preceding argument coming into this? You have a thought. What's the word order, the actual word order in the Greek? No is first. And then what comes next? Okay, it's... Therefore comes second. So it's not any therefore now of condemnation. Thank you. So it would be no therefore now condemnation. That's the Greek order. Thank you. <clears throat> Matthew Henry puts it this way. It's the unspeakable privilege and comfort of all those that are in Christ Jesus that there is therefore now no condemnation to them. He does not say there is no accusation against them. For there is. But the accusation is thrown out and the indictment is quashed. Paul does not say there is nothing in them that deserves condemnation. For there is. And they see it, and they own it, and they mourn over it, and condemn themselves for it, but it shall not be their ruin. Paul does not say there is no cross, no affliction to them, and no displeasure in the affliction, for this there may be, but there's no condemnation. They may be chastened of the Lord, but not condemned. Now this arises from their being in Christ. By virtue of their union with Him through faith, they are thus secured. They are in Christ Jesus as in their city of refuge and are protected from the avenger of blood. He is their advocate and brings them off. There is therefore no condemnation because they are interested in the satisfaction that Christ by dying made to the law. In Christ, God does not only not condemn them, but is well pleased with them. I have a very long, almost a half page from Martin Luther. I think I'll skip it. Um, we'll just skip Martin Luther for today. He says much of what Matthew Henry did. The whole, this whole concept here, of the, the idea that we're free of the sin. And oh, wait, isn't that what it says in verse 2? For, ooh, there's a cool word. Another therefore. One uh, commentator who focused on the Greek text is you have to look at that word for or gar in the Greek, and it's used frequently. In fact, you see at the beginning of verse 3. It's the idea of this continual argument. We might use the word because. 
but here it's the word for. So if I were to throw in the word because, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of spirit of life has set you free. You've been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Remember what it said in verse chapter 7, verse 24? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Chapter 8, verse 2. You are set free from the body of death in Christ Jesus. That's the answer. So Paul's crying out, who's going to save me? Who's going to set me free from this? And then he very quickly writes, I am free in Christ Jesus. One writer, his name is Mattoon, he said, isn't it interesting that there are two physical laws described in verse 2? I'm like, what? What's he, what do you, well, I don't see that. He goes, one is gravity and the other is, the other is aerodynamics. He said, so build a very large metal tube that weighs two tons. Throw it in the air. The law of gravity says it's going to crash. The law of aerodynamics says if you make it right and put enough thrust, it's going to fly. And as one Air Force pilot told me, he said, you give enough thrust, you can fly a brick. And I flew the F-4, and it's a brick. <laughs> it has very little aerodynamics. You can't really move around, but boy, can you go fast. And you can drop a lot of bombs and missiles off this thing. But it's aerodynamics says the impossible can happen. You are set free from the law. The law says big heavy things are going to crash. The law says you big a, big a, throw a big piece of metal in the ocean, it will sink. But if you make it right, you can put an aircraft carrier in the ocean and it will not sink. It's just, it's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. <coughs> the law of sin and death says you will crash. The law of spirits, law of the spirit says you will live. Now that word to be set free is the same one Jesus uses in John chapter 8 where he says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Verse 32. And in chapter 8, verse 36 of John, he writes, If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Same idea. Completely free. So here would be a question. If you ever get into a discussion with somebody, and maybe you get a sense that they're in bondage in their sin or in whatever they're wrapped up in, and ask them the question, if you were free, what would you do? If you were free of this, where would you go? What would you do? That comes down to then the human desire. Well, if you have been set free of your sin, what are you going to do with it? I know. 
I'm going to sit at home and watch TV. That'd be good. And I'm totally free. No. Kind of going off the message we heard this morning about the Great Commission, there is something outside of ourselves. We want to contribute to the kingdom. We want to be part of the kingdom. We want the kingdom to grow. We want to spread our good news of freedom to others. And I came across this statement about the society of Athens was one of the first and earliest societies that believed in freedom. Or at least their understanding of it. Yeah, they had a lot of slaves, but they still had the concept of freedom. But that society's freedom devolved into a freedom from responsibility and wanted society to give to them rather than them give to society. And when that begins to happen and all you want is gimme, 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 society will collapse. Hmm. <laughs> Do I need to comment further? <laughs> Make sure you vote on Tuesday. <laughs> A society that no longer gives to society but demands a society gives to them will die. And that's a human principle that we see over and over and over and over again. It even just popped in my head, but I was reading, oh yeah, this is great, sacred literature, a science fiction novel. But the evil empire in this novel had, the people were on the dole, they were on welfare. They called it on the dole. And the government was running out of money. The only way they could make money would be to conquer other planets. And so they became warlike and began going out and taking this place and taking their resources and selling them off so they could pay the dole. And then they began to run out of money, so they had to go to the next planet and the next one and the next one and the next one. And I still remember reading that going, oh, that would never happen. And then you kind of look at how countries, even in our world, the idea of take, take that resource because it'll help us. Oh, but it never goes to the people, it goes to the government. And you, you realize sometimes, even in fiction, it's an echo of truth. But here we are. The law of the Spirit is life of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And J. Vernon McGee even said it, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. You have to be with others who have that same thought, idea. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. <clears throat> so by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Let me put it this way. The law by itself cannot justify that's Romans chapter 3, verse 20. The law is holy, but the law cannot sanctify. 
That's Romans chapter 7, verse 12. The law reveals that I'm a sinner, but cannot make me a saint. What the law cannot do, God did through His Son. That's what this verse means. It isn't that the law is weak. The law actually provides a method for absolute holiness. And you know what that method is? Be perfect. All the time. For your entire life. Never sin. Never do anything wrong. Follow the law. And guess what? You would be perfect. But we know that no one can be. And thus, the law cannot sanctify, cannot justify. But God, through the sacrifice of His Son, is able to do so. Ray Pritchard put it this way. He says, the law is like a 10-foot pole. You can never say to the pole, please make this man 10 feet tall. The pole will look at you and go, uh, I don't have the ability to do that. But what I can do is be a measure and tell you how short he is. And that's what the law is. If you were 10 feet tall, hey, you're perfect. Well, nobody's been 10 feet tall. Not even Goliath. By any means or any measure, if you want to take the wildest of the uh, calculations, he was 9 feet tall. Probably he was closer to 7 foot 8, 7 foot 6. That's still a giant in a land of people who are 5 foot 4, naturally. So, but the law is that 10 foot pole. That pole cannot make you taller. It can only show how short you are. Notice in the language of the second half of that verse, it says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul was very careful. He didn't say Christ came in sinful flesh. He said he came in the likeness of it. Because... If he had said he came in sinful flesh, then that would mean Christ had sin in him when he came. Very, yeah, that's asceticism, which basically um, says Christ was divine but wasn't really human and didn't just, just appear to be, denying the incarnation. So Paul was careful in his language here, it was very intentional. Verse 4, and notice there's a comment at the end of verse 3, so I'll start in verse 3. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What is that righteous requirement? Perfection. So the perfection of the law might be fulfilled in us, but not by our own means. But according to the Spirit. Wayne Barber put it this way. He says, The character of God is demanded in us now, can be fulfilled in everyone, because the Holy Spirit has come to live in us. 
On one hand, the law shouts at us, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And I say, Come on, flesh, you gotta do it. And the flesh says, But no, we can't. And then you say, Well, then how am I gonna do this with Lord do this, Lord? And the Lord says, I fulfilled all of that already, and I'm in you. Now obey me. In you is the fulfillment of everything I require by the Holy Spirit's power who will work it out of you. The righteous requirement, that perfection, that holiness that God will find acceptable can only come through Christ Jesus, whose sacrifice eliminates the sin. This is a description of the Christian who walks not according to a flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Your word is so full. Goodness. There's so much, so much we can be looking at. So much more we're going to be exploring. So much that we just stand in awe and in praise and in thankfulness. But if we understand that in Christ, in your Son, we have that life. We have that hope of salvation. We are justified. We are free. And there is no condemnation because of what you've done for us, not because we worked it out, but because you loved us so much, you provided for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.